Well, hello, my name is my name is Robert Fight. Good to be with you today. I'm going to start today with a quote. Read you just a little bit of an article that Fox News reported on in a situation that you may or may not be aware of. <clears throat> Took place in 2014. It says this. The city of Houston has issued subpoenas demanding a group of pastors turn over any sermons dealing with homosexuality, gender identity, or the mayor of Houston herself, Anise Parker, the city's first openly lesbian mayor. And those ministers who fail to comply could be held in contempt of court. The city's subpoena of sermons and other pastoral communications is both needless and unprecedented. Alliance Defending Freedom Attorney Christina Holcomb said in a statement, the city council and its attorneys are engaging in an inquisition designed to stifle any critique of its actions, skipping down. The subpoenas are just the latest twist in an ongoing saga over the Houston's new non-discrimination ordinance. The law, among other things, would allow men to use the ladies' room and vice versa. The city council approved the law in June of 2014. Skipping down. Among those slapped with a subpoena to uh, to, uh, subject his sermons to the city council is Steve Regal, the senior pastor of Grace Community Church. He was ordered to produce all speeches and sermons related to Mayor Anise Parker homosexuality, and any issue dealing with gender identity. The bill at stake is a law that you may or may not have heard of. It's, it's an acronym, is the HERO law. And it refers to the ability of a uh, gay or lesbian or someone who is transgender to be able to access bathrooms of their choice in a public place. So... My job today is not necessarily to comment on the validity, the, the, the rightness, the wrongness, the morality, the morality of that issue. But my question that I want to bring to you today is how did we get here? How does a mayor of a major United States city feel as though she has the jurisdiction to walk into an otherwise private institution, whether it be Community Bible Church or whether it be St. John's Catholic Church or whether it be, you fill in the blank of whatever church it may be. How did we get to the point where a government feels as though it can impede on the property of a church? So what I want to do with you today is, and the clock there is my enemy, is to walk through just a brief survey of what you and I have grown to know, and you probably heard about it since the days of of grade school, something called the separation of church and state. I want to play a brief interview that the Christian Broadcasting Network did with now candidate Ted Cruz from Texas. Of course, Ted Cruz is in on the inside track of this, seeing that he is from Texas. So let me play this for you. 
And the guys in the back promised me that it would work. This is about the situation. One of the next battles in, in this culture war could indeed be right there in the pulpit as it relates to, I mean, are we going through a potential period or could we very well soon go through a period where pastors are in essence hauled off to jail or whatever it is for a hate crime because they're speaking for traditional marriage? Well, I, I think that is a real risk. And you and I have both pointed to that risk in the past. And, and, and some in, in the media ridicule that threat and say there's no danger of government coming after pastors. I mean, that, that, that is the usual response. In this instance, the subpoena from the city of Houston asked these five pastors, who are not parties to a lawsuit, mind you, they're simply pastors in the city of Houston, to turn over every sermon they have ever preached that mentions in any way homosexuality. And so the specter of government trying to determine if what pastors preach from the pulpit meets with the policy views or political correctness of the governing authorities, that prospect is real and it's happening now. And, and I have to say, you know, this, this, this gathering we had this morning, this unity rally, was uplifting. We saw upwards of 50 pastors from all throughout Houston, different denominations, people who, who may not see eye to eye on every question of faith, people of different races, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, all coming together united. Because as we said at, at, at that conference, when you subpoena one pastor, you subpoena every pastor. If, if government has the power to force the pulpit to knuckle under, if government has the power to insist that pastors hand over their sermons to government for government approval, then we've lost the very first freedom that begins our Bill of Rights. We've lost the freedom that this country was built on. That's what this fight is, and, and I very much hope it serves as a wake-up call to Christians, to people of faith. I hope it serves as a wake-up call to pastors to speak out and make abundantly clear that that we will not give up our religious liberty. We will not go quietly into the, into the night, but we will stand and fight for principles that are right and true and will speak the truth. And the pastors of this country will not be Muslim. All right. You heard Ted Cruz mention a number of things there. I've been teaching for a lot of years. And one of the things I've always tried to teach my students when it comes to the Bill of Rights is that rights seem to conflict with one another. My freedom of speech may not be your idea of the freedom to hear my speech. So rights in question, uh, rights in conflict are always in question. Now, you heard a number of things that Ted Cruz mentioned. You might say that the, the churches in Houston are saying, well, you know, this is our freedom of religion. There's no way that they can uh, come in here and do that. It violates the wall of separation, but you can see that the, the Houston... Uh, mayor and others who support her position are saying, well, wait a minute. Conversations, especially directed from a public pulpit, directed at, at uh, certain groups, are that's nothing more than, than hate speech. It's, it's not politically correct. So how does one, in a culture in which we live, balance between a clear violation of religion and religious freedom and the freedom of uh, uh, some groups to be free from speech directed to them. Well, I want to walk through a couple of things with you today, but since I'm a teacher, I'm going to give you a quiz. There will be a quiz, all right? 
So what I want you to do is with uh, maybe with a partner, I want you to just look at these three very simple questions. The first one says this, the separation of church and state is a core American doctrine that appears where? My way to church this morning, I quizzed my now eighth grader, Bryce. And I said, he said, Dad, he says, are you talking in church? I said, yeah. And he said, aren't you doing something on God and government? I said, yeah, sort of. And so I quizzed him. I said, Bryce, where do we get the right to have religious freedom? And he got number one right. So I hope you get number one right. Okay. Uh, Going on to number two. A separation of church and state is a concept, careful now, that was originally intended. I want to emphasize that word original. The separation of church and state is a concept intended to, A, keep the public government out of private churches. Situation in Houston. Or... Letter B, was the separation of church and state originally intended to keep church influences out of government policies, to scrub clean any residue of of religious, for example, taking the Ten Commandments off the Supreme Court building or removing them from the, the lobby of a public school? Is that what it was intended to do? Or... Was the separation of church and state originally intended by the founding fathers to insulate America from non-Christian religions? What do you think the right answer there is? Ah, number three. Separation of church and state is a doctrine that I as a Christian, you as a Christian, can support with a clear conscience. So in your conversations that you have, are you on shaky ground when you talk about church and state? Is it something you say, oh, you know, I've heard about that, but I don't really know if I'm supposed to be for that or again that. I don't know. So can you as a Christian support with a clear conscience church and state? Your choices are A, yes, B, no. And C, because if you're like me, anytime you take a quiz, you don't even know what your name really is. You're just, you're just not sure of anything at that point. Okay, so you can choose C if you want. All right, let's check your answers. Number one, the separation of church and state is a core American doctrine that appears within, you said? Ah, we get some differences of opinion. It is none of the above. It is none of the above. The term, and we're going to talk about this, the term separation of church and state is a penumbra. It's a shadow. It's something that you you, you know is there, but it's not directly there. Now, we, we have many examples of that. In the United States Constitution, the word checks and balances never appears. The the term separation of powers never appears. But you and I know that we have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch, and we know how laws are passed. At least we should. But the Congress, the Constitution never explicitly uses those words. And so the term separation of church and state actually does not appear in any of those documents. How'd you do? Second one, separation of church and state is a concept intended to do what? 
The separation of church and state intended to, so if this is the wall of separation, is the wall of separation intended to allow government, allow church influences into the government, or is it uh, supposed to allow government influences into the church? What is it supposed to do? You said, the answer is A. As originally intended by the Founding Fathers, and we'll show you that on those resources here in just a moment, it was originally intended by the Founding Fathers to be, as I've told my students for years, it it really is a a one-way street, not a two-way. We'll get to that. Number three, separation of church and state is a doctrine that I, as a Christian, can support. Absolutely. 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 As originally intended by the Constitution by the writers of the Constitution. Absolutely. Here's why. Now, we're not going to get into history here. This isn't a dissertation on on, on history because I'd put you right to sleep. And I don't want to do that. But historically speaking, if you remember back from your U.S. or world history classes, they were, those lectures, those readings were rife with instances of a government that adopted a spiritual philosophy. In fact, look at, look at Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia today. Those governments are theocracies. They are governments that are ordained. They are governments that operate by and they, they, they take their direction not from a earthly but they take from a spiritual authority. And they have Sharia law, or they, in England, for example, it was Henry VIII. You remember him, the guy that chopped the heads off of his wives? Remember that guy? The Church of England's Anglican War on Puritanism. Why did your history teachers tell you that so many pilgrims came to America? Why? What were they trying to get rid of? Where were they running from? They were running from the Church of England. Remember Bloody Mary? Remember hearing about Bloody Mary? Why was she bloody? What did she do to the citizens who would not adopt Catholicism during her five-year reign in England? Her nickname was Bloody Mary Mary for a reason. All right? So whenever we see a government adopting a national religion, chaos ensues for anybody at least who doesn't go their way. So historically in England... What about the Spanish Inquisition? We all remember, and I was thinking about putting some of the images up in the slide presentation, and I thought better of it and said no. Because the images that come from pictures of the Spanish Inquisition, what the, what the Spanish Catholic government did to those Protestants and to those Jews and to anybody who didn't uh, abide by their brand of Catholicism, they were massacred. We all remember the crusades that took place in the Holy Land. And here's a, here's a Christian or a Catholic Europe visiting the Middle East with their warriors. And the intent there is to promote their brand, whether it was Christianity, whether it was Catholicism, as we understand the terms to be, whatever it was. But here was a state-sponsored campaign of war against Middle Eastern peoples. So, historically... When church and state combine, it's never a good thing. 
But currently, I know there's a lot to read and I know you can't read it, but I just want you to be able to see uh, that currently, according to the Harvard uh, quarterly, there are 188 countries in the world today. 40% of those countries, that's 75, are classified as having a state religion. So for us to say that what's going on in Houston is diabolical, how can that possibly be? Where do they think they have the right to do that? Well, they have to look only no further than a map of of, uh, the countries of the world and have it colored in with countries who actually have a state-sponsored religion. Seventy-five countries, and that was the year 2000. Uh, If you talk to any missions groups, according to Operation World, a book written by Patrick Johnstone and Jason Mandrick, there are currently... A, a long list of closed countries because the government has decided we don't want Christianity. We don't want we don't we don't we don't we don't want Mormonism. We don't want it. It might be you know you pick the religion, but they have closed it to foreign missionaries, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it. They're closed. We don't want you. Again, the government has taken a position where they have objected to a church practice. And so historically and currently, it's important, and you as a Christian can support it, the fact that the, the church and state need to remain separate. Just a real, real quick graphic here. According to Pew Research recently, this was taken in uh, 2009. Uh, look, just the highlighted part. Uh, a survey found that 64 nations, about one-third of the countries in the world, have high or very high restrictions on religion. But because some of the most restrictive countries are very populous, nearly 70% of the world's 6.8 billion people live in countries with high restrictions on religions. Now watch carefully. The brunt of mo- the brunt of which often falls on religious minorities. Most restrictions result from government actions, policies, and laws. So what's going on in Houston is not foreign to the rest of the world. The rest of the world is quite used to this. It's strange to you and I. Okay. You have in front of you way too much information. (laughs) Way too much information. Uh, But let me explain what this is. The first thing I want you to look at is, and I've highlighted it for your ease of... uh, focus is the two references in the United States Constitution in which God is mentioned, or religion, I should say. Uh, the Constitution is not a spiritual handbook. It is, it is not a, a, a commentary on religious liberties. Simply twice is there any reference to anything spiritual. And I've highlighted them for you. The first one is the one that you and I all know. It's found in the Bill of Rights, Amendment Number 1. It clearly says this, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In a word, that means that Congress, the National Congress that is, because the 14th Amendment was not yet passed, which applied the Bill of Rights to the states, that means that Washington, D.C. cannot make Presbyterianism, Methodistism, is that an ism? 
whatever ism it is, a national religion. We cannot have an Anglican church. We cannot have, as Saudi Arabia has, as a national church, the, 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 the religion of Islam. We, they cannot do that. The second reference to religion is found in article number six. In paragraph three, it simply says, no religious test can be made to any candidate. Those of you that are remembering two elections that jump into my mind, uh, first of all, the Kennedy election back in the back in 1960. Those of you that are old enough to remember that, there was quite a bit of conversation about whether or not President Kennedy was a what? Was he was he a Catholic or not? And the fear then that surrounds that is, well, is he going to take his orders from the Vatican? Just, you know, what are we getting? Well, the writers of the Constitution were very clear on that. They said, no, there shall no, there shall not be any religious test given to any candidate. Most recently, the election of President Obama. And there was a lot of conversation about what his religion was. And staying completely away from that, the founding fathers were very clear in Article Number 6. They said, no, wait a minute, there shall be no religious test. So, if a candidate is a religious guy, or if he is not a religious guy. It matters not in the eyes of the founding fathers. There shall be no religious test. So, what follows after that now is some case law. Now, I'm going to put something up here, and I don't want it to shock you. Okay? Before I do, let me make this clear. That any time a statement is made... And 235, 37, whatever it's been years now since the Constitution has been passed, things tend to evolve. Interpretations change. All right? So the original intent of the Founding Fathers versus how the separation of church and state is now interpreted is what I want to walk through with all of you. To make my point, I want you to look at that illustration. Now, if I have any former students in here, they've probably seen this before. What you're looking at is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, back in the 1920s, adopted the swastika as their motto. The swastika was a symbol of good luck, good fortune. Today, when I look at a student's papers and he does or she does a good job, I put a smiley face on it. Dot, dot, smiley. You did great. Well done. Imagine today if I put a swastika underneath that A and that arrives back home at your table and your child says, Mommy, Daddy, look, Mr. Fight said I did a good job. Look, he gave me a swastika. You would call the school, wouldn't you? Because over time, the interpretation of what was once meant to mean one thing evolves into something quite different over time. And that's certainly what happened to the swastika. And that is certainly, if you look here, that is certainly what has happened with the doctrine of separation of church and state. That's certainly what has happened with what we call the Establishment Clause, which is the Constitution's First Amendment. There shall, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. That establishment clause meant one thing 
between 1607 and 1948. In your resources there, I have on the left side of the margin original intent. And I want you to be able to see case law that supports what the founding fathers originally intended for the relationship between church and state to be. It was an extremely harmonious relationship. It was a partnership. It was literally a marriage between the two. As I said earlier, it was, it was, it was very much a one-way street. There was intended to be great influence by, by Christianity and by moral people on those who went to Washington, D.C. to legislate the policies for you and I to follow. There was to be incredible influence. There was not supposed to be a numbness, a, a separation, a schism between the two. So I want to be able to demonstrate to you back in the days of, there's some of our founding fathers, uh, and because I'm a very visual person, I put a World War II soldier there. So when, when you see 1945 and 1948, you can go, oh, that was, that was World War II. So between 1607, which is the date of Jamestown, our original settlement, all the way through 1948, the courts interpreted the wall of separation to be one thing. But now, from 1948 to 2015, the courts are very, very different. Very, very different. How is it that prayer in public schools is removed? How is it that I, as a school teacher, cannot... Careful what I say in, in terms of what I cannot and what I would not. But I, I cannot I cannot lead students in, in any kind of a Bible discussion. I've got to be very careful about the words I use and how I answer questions. Okay? How did things change? Well, let me take you to let me take you to some of the resources here. If you look at resources B, the concept of separation of church and state is not new. It's very, very old. It's hundreds of years old. And what I've gone through is some literature that brings up separation of church and state. It, it's, a, it's a concept not new. It's something that our founding fathers were quite familiar with. They understood it. They'd read it by, by dozens of authors during the Enlightenment period. This was a common, uh, uh, well-understood principle that the idea of a, of a, of a uh, church, of a government legislative and religious policy is, is, is not going to work, but certainly that, that good Christian moral people should have a very heavy influence on those making government policies. And you can, on your own, look through the pieces there that I have highlighted, what I would really like to call your attention to is the very last one on page two, Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. This is what most scholars point to whenever a conversation about separation of church and state rises. They say, well, well, well Thomas Jefferson, and he did, and it's quoted right there for you, he says in his letter to some concerned Baptist ministers, he says in the highlighted portion, I contemplate with sovereign reverence 
the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature, legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, unquote, thus building, and here it is, a wall of separation between church and state. That's where most folk believe that it came from, but it was actually quite a bit older. Now, if you look at resources C, I want you to see the highlighted piece there. I'm going to walk you through about 10 cases that over a course of 100 years or so, the Supreme Court dealt with conflicts between church and state. And nearly every time they ruled on the side of the church policy, on the side that you and I would in a Christian building such as this say, oh, well, that's how they should have done it. That, that's clear. That's, you know, that's the right thing to do because that's you and I, that's our bias. But the court, I want to be able to show you here, did the same thing. Look at these, uh, a couple of these cases. Uh, let's flip it over and do Peoples versus Ruggles. In 1811, a guy by the name of John Ruggles stood up in a bar and probably under the influence of liquor, he said some very unbecoming things about Jesus Christ and his earthly mother, Mary. He blasphemed. Originally, the authorities arrested him and charged him with blasphemy under the uh, state statute. Uh, he was fined $500, which can you imagine at time of in 1811 what $500 was? That would be thousands to you and I today. He was fined $500 and he was sentenced to three months in jail. Uh, in his opinion, Judge Ambrose Spencer said, though the Constitution has discarded religious establishments, it does not forbid judicial cognizance of those offenses against religion and morality which have no reference to any such establishment. Thus, or this Declaration, noble and magnanimous as it is, when duly understood, never meant to withdraw religion in general, and with it the best sanctions of moral and social obligation from all consideration or notice of the law. If you'll skip down and simply look at the highlighted pieces, in another blasphemy case, the court ruled Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been a part of the common law. Not Christianity founded on any particular religious tenet, not Christianity with an established church, but Christianity with liberty of conscience to all men. Thus, this wise legislature framed this great body of laws for a Christian country and a Christian people. Thus, it is irrefragably proved that the laws and institutions of this state are built on the foundation and reverence for Christianity. Flipping it over. City of Charleston in 1846, there was that case, a law that the city of Charleston said that businesses should be closed. This is one of the first cases of its kind, which, 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 which people began to challenge whether a business ought not to be open on Sunday. Uh, or they wanted to open. In fact, it was brought by a Jewish man who wanted to sell gloves. And if you understand anything about Judaism, they worship on what day? I know it's not Sunday. <laughs> I know it's not Sunday. So he felt it was his prerogative to open his business on Sunday. That was a different, just another work day for him. And in City of Charleston versus Benjamin, uh, he was not able to do so. The court said this, what constitute the standard of good morals? Is it not Christianity? There certainly is none other. The day of moral virtue in which we would live in an instant, if that standard were abolished, lapse into dark and murky night of pagan immorality. 
in Commonwealth versus Nesbitt, the question of polygamy was raised and whether or not a man could marry multiple wives. And the Supreme Court said, law can never become entirely infidel for it is essentially founded on the moral customs of men and the very generating principles of these is most often religion. And if you just go through and look at the highlighted pieces, you will see over and over and over and over again the the Supreme Court and or state Supreme Courts give. They tip their hat to the church side saying we are a Christian people and we're going to rule a Christian way. There's a, there's a great friendship between the church and, and its uh, neighbor, the state. But I need you to flip the page now. Go over to page 6. Something changed. Something changed. Look at resources D. From 1948 now to 2015. The cases I just read you take place 1607 to 1948. A friendship. A good relationship between these two. In 1948, after World War II, things began to change. You say, why is that? Well, you have only to look farther than the Second uh, second Humanist Manifesto that comes out in 1933 as it began to get traction. You have a very liberal bench under Hugo Black that takes over in the Supreme Court. You have, you have a lot of, 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 of modern liberalism that starts to seep into the court. And I want you to start, uh, I want you to notice that the change that the court gives now in cases that revolve around church and state relations. Look at the first one. In fact, if you look at the yellow highlighted piece just above that, federal and state supreme case law demonstrates a shift from support or harmony between religion and government now to a position of neutrality, even hostility. For fears of descending down, as Sandra Day O'Connor said, that slippery slope to the creation or endorsement, she said, of a national religion or political correctness. In McCullough versus Maryland, uh, McCullough versus Board of Education in 1948, the court found religious instruction in public schools to be a violation of the Establishment Clause, therefore unconstitutional. The court found that a religious program was, quote, beyond question of utilization of the tax-established and tax-supported public school system to aid certain religious groups and to spread their faith. Page 7, you don't know it, but you're well familiar with these cases. Just let your eyes roll down to page 7. Do some of those cases sound familiar to you? Those of you that are my age? In Engel versus Vital, one of the most famous cases ever adjudicated by the Supreme Court in 1961, the, day, the year I was born. The Supreme Court ruled that any kind of prayer... Notice that I highlighted the whole thing. You need to read this. SCOTUS ruled that any kind of prayer composed by public school districts, even non-denominational prayer, is unconstitutional government sponsorship of religion. Neither the prayer's non-denominational character nor its voluntary character saves it from unconstitutionality. By providing prayer, New York officially approved of religion. This was the first in a series of cases in which the court used the Establishment Clause to eliminate religious activities of all sorts, which had been traditionally a part of public ceremonies. 
For your interest, I included the prayer that they threw out. Go ahead and read it. That was the prayer that got... It was taken to court. Isn't that something? The prayer simply read this. Read this way. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee and beg thy blessings upon us, our teachers, and our country. That was ruled unconstitutional. Because it was leading to a slippery slope of establishing a national religion. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? That got rid of Bible reading. Uh, That got rid of prayer. Let's get rid of Bible reading now. Uh, In Abington School District versus Shemp, this is Pennsylvania, 1963. Running alongside, you see that name Murray there? Ever heard of Madeline Murray O'Hare, the the infamous atheist? She uh, had a a case going alongside of this one, Murray versus Curlet. In 1963, the Supreme Court ruled that reading the Bible over the school intercom was descending upon that slippery slope to establishing a national religion. The court found that forcing a child to participate in Bible reading and Christian prayer to be unconstitutional. Students were required to read ten Bible verses and recite the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of each school day. Now, I'm not sitting here. I work in a public high school. I'm not saying that would be a good idea. That's not what I'm advocating. Please don't misunderstand. Okay? I would, I would no rather be able to read my Bible to them as they would read one of their holy texts to me. I'm not interested, and that's not why we're there. But my point is simply this. Can you imagine the founding fathers on this side, on this side, if they would have interpreted this issue? What what would those guys have said about prayer in a school? What would they have said? And now you can see the shift. It, It went from harmony to hostility. And it, it gets quite worse as you as you go along. Uh, in Epperson versus Arkansas, 1968, SCOTUS ruled that the state laws that ban the teaching of evolution and protect creationism are now unconstitutional because creationism was viewed as a dogma of Christianity. One of the basic tenets of Christianity. We have to get rid of that because it's like teaching, you know, the Ten Commandments or it's like teaching a baptism by immersion or it's a Christian dogma that creationism does not even fit under the scope of science now. It's, it's a dogma of religion. So out went uh, creationism. If you'll turn the page. Uh, in Lemon versus Kurtzman, 1971, There was a case that dealt with uh, federal tax dollars going to help church-based schools with curriculum, with books. Uh, The communities filed a petition against that and said they can't do that. That is the state sponsoring a religion. You're sponsoring a Christian school. You're sponsoring a Catholic or parochial school. You can't do that. Our tax dollars cannot go to help promote Christianity in any form, any way, shape, or form. And so in Lemon versus Kurtzman, the Supreme Court established a three-part test. And we'll end with this. The government action, they threw out the aid. They said, you can't do that. So for those of you that attend inner-city Baptist 
or if you go to any other, you know, Oakland Christian or Southfield Christian, whatever, Plymouth Christian, whatever Christian school you may go to, here's why they, uh, the, the state cannot support those schools. Lemon versus Kurtzman said, number one, any government action has to have a secular purpose. Well, supporting a Christian school certainly would not be a secular purpose. Number two, the action of the government must not be to inhibit or advance religion. Well, you can see the problem there. And thirdly, there must be no excessive entanglement between government and religion. So based on the lemon test, it's called. Look down below in those resources. Look what governments, look what your city cannot do. What city do you live in? You live in Woodhaven? Woodhaven cannot put up a nativity scene. Why? The city of Woodhaven cannot put up a nativity scene out on their public grass. You say, I've seen it. Well, if you have, look closely. See if there's not a Santa Claus in there hiding somewhere. See if there's not some elves running around the manger. See if it doesn't say happy holidays. See if there isn't an inclusion of another either religion or uh, a watering down of the nativity scene. See if that's not in there. Because if it's a straight up, as we would say, nativity scene with Jesus and the manger and you know the angels and, and all of that, it's according to the lemon test in Stone versus Graham, or rather uh, Allegheny County versus the ACLU, it's illegal. Now, could the city of Woodhaven get away with it? Sure. But the moment somebody complains, the city of Woodhaven is going to be on shaky footing because the Supreme Court has ruled that in doing so, a government, a city government like Woodhaven or Riverview or wherever, is proceeding down a slippery slope that establishes a national religion. And they can't do that. It's, 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 the, it's them saying, we give, we give a tip of the hat to Christianity. The Muslims would say, well, what about us? The Jews would say, what about us? The, 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 you know, you fill in the blanks on how that would be a government endorsement, said Sandra Day O'Connor, of uh, a religious, a religious test. Okay. Uh, our time is gone, so we're going to stop there. Uh, maybe we can finish this someday. Let me, uh, let me give you a quiz. I said we'd end with a quiz. Answer the question. The wall of separation between church and state was originally intended by the founding fathers to look more like which of these illustrations? Is it one or two? When I stood here a moment ago and I put my arm up, I said, what did the founding fathers originally intend for the wall of separation to look like? Was it a wall that was designed to let religious influences impact the legislators? Or was the wall supposed to lean the other way and allow what's going on in Houston to take place? Which of those is true? I Hopefully you pick number one. Let's pray and go home. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for the chance to study uh, these things and pray that you would uh, bless our times around our tables and our families now as we think about fathers. And we just pray that you would uh, gather us all again next Lord's Day in your house. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.